Today, July 16, 2020, is 50 days after the murder of Tony McDade, 52 days after the murder of George Floyd, 125 days after the murder of Breonna Taylor, 144 days after the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, 278 days after the murder of Atatiana Jefferson, 327 days after the murder of Elijah McClain, 851 days after the murder of Stephen Clark, 1,471 days after the murder of Philando Castile, 1,472 days after the murder of Alton Sterling, 1,922 days after the murder of Freddie Gray, 1,975 days after the murder of Janisha Fonville, 2,063 days after the murder of Tamir Rice, 2,065 days after the murder of Akai Gurley, 2,072 days since the murder of Tanisha Anderson, 2,075 days after the murder of Ora Rosser, 2,166 days after the murder of Michael Brown, and 2,191 days after the murder of Eric Garner. It has been 10,305 days since the 1992 Los Angeles riots and 23,699 days since Emmett Till was lynched. I say these names and these days because Black Lives Matter isn't a moment, it's a movement. The fight for civil rights does not live in the 1960s. It does not start with Rosa Parks and end with Martin Luther King Jr. It never did. There were freedom fighters before and after and now. Because while the movement has had waves, it never stopped flowing, at least to the people who were paying attention. As a South Asian American woman, I grew up thinking that, yes, slavery was bad, but then MLK gave a speech and Black people had equal rights. If they were disadvantaged, maybe it was their own doing. I didn't have words for systemic racism, or gentrification, or disenfranchisement, or voter suppression, or their stories being completely left out of history. I was taught that white people were the norm, and I was different, and that's how it is. I was taught that individual free will was all that mattered. I believed in diversity, but I never saw much beyond that until after college. I didn't see myself as political. But I was forever changed by the intelligence of great friends, a toxic marriage, and the resources to read and learn about how white supremacy never ended. It didn't have to look like white people in white hoods. It could look like my neighbor, who walks her dog without leashes on a major street in Los Angeles, and yells at a random Asian woman who doesn't stop them when they run away. It looks like policing Black people's vocabulary in the workplace. It looks like complaining about looting when Black and brown people have been looted of their land and labor for centuries. In the words of Kimberly Latrice Jones' recent viral video, quote, They're lucky that what Black people are looking for is equality and not revenge, unquote. So why do I bring this up on Migrations, a podcast where I, a South Asian American woman, interview creative and political Asians about their story of migration and the work they do? I bring it up because we are all in this. I don't see space for that's not my problem because this is our problem. And not just Asians, all of us. All people in this country, and likely globally, have benefited or suffered because of slavery and the disenfranchisement of Black people. Let me repeat that. All people in this country have benefited or suffered 
because of slavery and the disenfranchisement of black people. As I've said a few times before, and I'll say again, my parents wouldn't have been able to come to the United States if it weren't for the civil rights movement. I probably wouldn't exist. The LGBTQ community wouldn't have pride parades if it weren't for Marsha P. Johnson. We wouldn't have the political candidates we've had or financial advantages or disadvantages if it weren't for gerrymandering or redlining. COVID-19 is a perfect example of something that seemingly doesn't discriminate, yet it does. Just because COVID-19 can kill a rich white man doesn't mean it's immune from existing health disparities. In fact, it preys upon these disparities, inequities that have been birthed through social and political dispossession. When I interview my guests and talk to them about their migration stories, they often talk about how their story of migration has to do with finding, quote, a better life, unquote, and, quote, opportunity, unquote. People usually don't leave their homes and family and culture unless they want more than what is in their country. This makes me wonder how the colonization of India made lasting impressions and divisions in India, pushing people like my parents and so many others out to have a better life. It makes me wonder about the lack of choices refugees had after the global forces of imperialism, colonization, and military intervention hadn't forced humanitarian crises in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. The very idea that a country can take over a land, that they deserve more, and know better, is the same force that causes countries to lose control of their own resources and seek new homes. Immigration isn't random, and beautiful things have come from it, like unique ethnic identities— fusion foods, and interracial relationships. But the reason I started this podcast was to explore how these forces look in different people's lives. It isn't just about economic stability and moving to the suburbs to have 2.5 kids. It's about looking deeper into how we got here in the first place and why we want or don't want those things. For Tiffany Wong, it was about how trauma affected her sense of worth as a Chinese-American girl. For Rima Zaman, it looked like a precarious immigration status that prevented her from reporting a rape. For Khadija, it's how multiple migrations and identity have encouraged her entrepreneurial spirit. Then there's Marzi Safarian, who infuses Iranian and American symbols into her art as a feminist stance and as a way to fight misinformation about Iranian culture and history. Sonali Rashidwar, a.k.a. the fat sex therapist, talks about how Hindu casteism is intricately tied to how we view body image and body purity. Fantasy author James Yu talks about how he writes with different perspectives in his Asian fantasy writing based upon his own experience of migration and knowledge of Asian history. Then I talked to Nick Strack, a parenting coach. Nick grew up with Korean and Indian parents and was taught to try to just be American. It wasn't until later in life that they saw how different systems of oppression affected the way they think. My conversation with immigration lawyer Denu Maru taught me so much about the complexities of the U.S. immigration system, and I loved how her personal immigration challenges and experiences coming to the U.S. from India inspired her to go to law school so she could learn the rules. In my most recent episode with Suhat Khatib, brought everything together. She talks about the massacre of Leith in Palestine and how it forced her father to migrate, leaving his home as a child, not even knowing his birthday. Now Suhad organizes for Palestinian and Black lives. I say all this because maybe you haven't had a chance to listen to all these episodes, and that's okay. I summarize these episodes to show how migration can look so different, yet there are common threads in so many of these stories. Struggling with identity, trying to make peace with it, 
and channeling it into the work we do is a very human thing. Making meaning is what keeps us alive, and this is exactly why we have to fight for Black lives. Because our stories might very well be a result of the harm inflicted upon Black and brown people. This isn't about blame, it's about history and its consequences and accountability. We have to reckon with it, or we are just lying to ourselves. My hope is that this podcast brings us together in a way that we don't erase our differences. I also hope that we think about the many ways guilt affects us on a personal and societal level. This is where I think being Asian American is unique. We are underrepresented, yet we are seen as the model minority. And yes, many Asian Americans might appear to have reached the American dream and have experienced less oppression than Black people. And so many of us are indebted to the civil rights movement for allowing more Asians into the country after we were barred for over 40 years. So I think this can bring up a lot of guilt. But similar to white guilt, while we can have feelings, giving power to guilt doesn't do anything to solve the problem. If anything, it dismisses systemic oppression toward Black people by centering our experiences. That doesn't mean we can't share our stories or talk about our struggles. It means that we can't leave Black histories out of this story. When we look at anything in a systemic way, we have to recognize and honor the foundation. This is the work we must do to center Black voices, redistribute wealth, understand Black history, and talk to our own families about anti-Black racism. Is this easy? Of course not. It was never supposed to be. But it's necessary. I hadn't talked to you all alone for a little bit, and I felt like this was a good time as any to ground ourselves in what's really important. Equity, humanity, and community. There are former episodes in this season of Migrations, and I'm really excited to share them with you. Thank you so much for your support. This is Nisha Modi. See you next time.